got a question for you. What do these statements all have in common? I'm going to read you a series of statements. I want you to think about what they have all in common. First one, I'm going to get into shape this year. Statement number two, no more social media. I'm getting off for good. I'm going to run a marathon. I'm going to start saving a little each month for my paycheck to start saving up for that big purchase. I'll be there at 5 o'clock. All right, what do all those statements have in common? Here's what they all have in common. They are probably things that all of us have said at least one of those. If you've said or thought at least one of those statements at some point in the last couple of years, please raise your hand. Oh, wow, okay, some of, some of us, there's not as many as I thought. Um, these are all promises that we have made at some point to other people or maybe to ourselves that came in the year 2021. This will be the year that I get into to shape. This will be the year that I finally run that marathon. Man, I'm sick of all the toxic, toxic atmosphere on social media. I'm done for good. I've seen so many people get off social media and then like, you're, hey, you're, you're back again. There were a bunch of people who were like, we're going over to... Whatever that one was that came up at the beginning of the year, we're leaving, and then they're back on Facebook and, and all that. I just can't live without it, apparently. Uh, or I'll be there at, at 5, and that really means, you know, 523. Um, we're not really good at keeping promises, are we? Uh, in fact, studies have been done to show that 80% of New Year's resolutions have uh, fall by the wayside. Remember back in January, way back in January, yeah, the, man, 2021 will be different than 2020, and here we are kind of back to, you know, the same old ruts that we always fall into. For all our good intentions, we often fail to follow through, and some of these are just small commitments that we make to maybe do better in our lives. Some of these are commitments and promises we make to other people, and there's a number of reasons why we fail in our promises. Think about it. Think about the promises that you've made and maybe have broken or have been made to you and have been broken. We've all been on both ends of the, uh, the broken promises spectrum. For one thing, we're all sort of flawed, fallible human beings. We're not as strong as we think we are. We have every intention of, man, I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to be here. I'm going to be there. I'm going to do these things and follow through on them. And we just don't quite have the strength or the capability to do the things that we would want to do. There's another reason circumstances come up. Hey, I'll be there at 5 o'clock, but you didn't plan on the semi-truck that rolled over and closed the road, and then you had to go around, and then you're really there at 520. You couldn't have foreseen that. You didn't know about circumstances. So we fail because of lack of power, sometimes because of unforeseen circumstances. And then honestly, let's, let's just be really honest here, because we don't really mean it. Right? We, yeah, we, I'll do this for you. I'll be there for you. But it's just sort of a nice thing to say. We like to say things to other people. Because we know that's what they want to hear, and it's not really what we mean. All right? Just let's be transparent. And by the way, that would be something the gospel would call us to speak the truth one to another. But we, we, we don't really care. What we care about is people thinking well of us, not really us keeping our word to them. So, yeah, I'll do that. I'll be there. And, and all those things. And then we're, we're not because we never had any intention. Just sort of apathy. In contrast to us which all of us, maybe you're feeling conviction already, we are promise breakers because of our lack of power, because of our unforeseen circumstances, because of our, our apathy, our selfishness. In contrast to that, here's the message this morning. Our God is a faithful promise keeper. He keeps every one of his promises. He never fails. He is always consistent. Every commitment he makes, he keeps. Every promise he he issues, he fulfills. Every guarantee he makes, he upholds. And Genesis 21 is where we are this morning in our Bibles. Genesis 21, we're continuing on with the life of Abraham. Genesis 21 is sort of the culmination of the longing of the, the last eight, nine chapters we've been walking through. Back in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. He says, I'm going to go make a great nation of you. I'm going to, you're going to have children and blessing and land. Well, here we come, 25 years later, Abraham is now pushing up on the age of 100, and he still doesn't have the son. He still doesn't own a square inch of the land. In the land of Canaan, there's no great nation. Will God keep his promises? And here in Genesis 21, we see God begin to deliver on those promises. God keeps his promises to his people. And I want to walk through this chapter and show how he does that. So follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. And the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did unto Sarah, as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bare, a son, uh, bare Abraham a son in his old age, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, whom Sarah bare to him, 
Isaac, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old as God had commanded him. And Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. Sarah said, God hath made me to laugh, so that all who hear will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have, had, should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. This is awesome, isn't it? We see God here, first off, fulfilling his promises powerfully. What's very obvious as you read through this is Abraham's 100, Sarah is 90. And listen, you don't have to have a PhD in biology to understand that 100-year-old men and 90-year-old women don't have kids together. That just doesn't happen. That is not humanly, physically, biologically possible. And as I mentioned in the intro, this has been 25 years since Abraham first came into the land of Canaan. He was 75 years old when he came, and now he's 100. It's been a quarter of a century from God giving the promise to God fulfilling the promise. Verse 1, notice how God does this. And the Lord visited Sarah. Now that means more than God just showed up and was like, hey, I'm here, what's going on? That term visited has theological weight in the Old Testament. It means God's presence arrives, God intervenes in the affairs uh, of humanity to accomplish his will. Sometimes it's a good thing, sometimes it's a bad thing. Sometimes when God visits his people, it is in judgment, and other times it is in blessing. It really depends on the condition of the people. So it's kind of like mom comes home from, she's been out grocery shopping, she's left the kids at home, and they've been given a set number of tasks they're supposed to do. If you've done those things, mom coming home, hey, is a good thing. But if you've not done those things, mom coming home, not a good thing. And I speak from experience, very vivid experiences from my childhood of, uh, of not doing what we were supposed to and uh, reaping consequences of said failures. But here's the point. The birth of Isaac is the result of God's direct action. This is not just sort of, well, this is the way things just sort of go. By the way, every birth, every human life is a gift of God. This one, however, though, is the result of a miraculous intervention, God visiting Sarah. Now, notice there's some repetition in verse 1. Look back at the text. God did it as he had said, the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. This is Hebrew poetry. But notice twice in that verse, it's just like God said it would be. Verse 2, Sarah conceived, bare Abraham a son in his old age, again a miracle, at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Three times in two verses, this is happening just like God said. God makes a promise, and it's fulfilled exactly as it was meant to be fulfilled. Right down to the timing. Notice that. Did you see that in verse 2? At the set time of which God had spoken. Back in Genesis 18, look back just a couple of pages, Genesis 18, verse 10 Yahweh had paid another visit to Abraham and Sarah, and he said in verse 10 of Genesis 18, he said, I will certainly return unto thee according to the time of life, and lo, Sarah thy wife shall have a son. God saying it's going to happen at, within the next year. Back in Genesis, 9, uh, Genesis 17, God had made a similar promise that Abraham would have a son within a specific time. You see, God, when he fulfills his promises, it's not just a prediction where God's sort of looking down the corridor of time being like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're going to have a kid here, so let me just sort of predict. It's not like God's predicting the weather, being like, oh, yeah, look at the forecast. Here's what's going to happen. It's unlike predicting the weather. He's causing the weather, so to speak. He's not just saying you're going to have a son, but I'm going to cause this to happen. They are more, God's promises are more than mere predictions of what will happen. They are guarantees of what he himself will accomplish Don't think that God sits back in heaven on his cushy throne, passively watching history unfold in some fatalistic fashion. He acts within history to accomplish exactly what he decrees and determines. Like what one writer said over 500 years ago, he never feeds men with empty promises, nor is he less true in granting what he has promised than he is liberal and willing in making the promise. So it's not that God sort of over-promises and kind of under-delivers. No, God gives a promise, and often he fulfills it in an even greater fashion than when he made it. That's our God, generous in the fulfillment of his promises, not stingy. Looking at God fulfilling this powerfully, look at verse 3. Abraham called the name of his son that was born unto him, who Sarah bare to him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son, Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded. Now again, something happening exactly as God had spoken. By the way, this is an illustration of when we talk about God's will. The sort of two senses of God's will. There's God's will in his commands, his revealed will. And then there's God's command in his, in his decrees 
of what he determines himself that he himself will do. His secret will, his revealed will, we see both of those here. So what God had spoken would happen, he sees to it that it happens. But there's also what God had spoken in terms of command that he reveals to, hey, Abraham, when the child's born, you were supposed to circumcise him. But the naming of the child, this is not just random where Abraham's like, oh, yeah, I'll call the kid Isaac, that's, that's a good name. He's got a nice ring, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, those all kind of go together. No, he's naming his son Isaac because God told him to name his son Isaac. Back in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 17, Again, we've got to look back there to understand what's going on. Look there with me. When God gave this promise to Abraham, hey, you and Sarah are going to have a child, Abraham fell on his face and laughed. He, like, falls over laughing and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that's 100 years old? Like, he's just laughing. This is unbelievable that God would do this for him. So when God gives the prediction to Abraham, what does Abraham do? He laughs. Not like, oh, God, you can't do it, but just, this is just, just beyond the... I I don't have a category for this. Sarah, in Genesis 18 and verse 12, she overhears another conversation, and Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Now, what does that have to do with the name Isaac? The name Isaac, of course, is Hebrew for the word laughter. It's the exact same word. So whenever you see laughed in the text here in these opening verses, it's a play on the name Isaac. So she said, everyone will laugh. Everyone will Isaac with me. Right? In verses 6 and 7. So here's a child whose name is laughter now. Initially, initially the laughter was the laughter of, this is unbelievable. Someone tells you something, you're like, huh, that's, that's, that's likely. But now this is the laughter of joy from a baby finally coming to this, this couple who had been unable their entire lives to have a child. Sarah had been barren her whole life. Abraham and Sarah together had never been able to have a child. And here they are at the ages of 190 having a child. So Abraham names the baby, he circumcises the baby. Now, what's the deal with that? We noted that in Genesis 17, this is sort of a down payment on the promise. God's saying, you're going to be a great nation. And this is an act of saying, God, we believe in your plan for the future. Yes, a great nation will be, and this child will be part of your covenant. So here's the result of the birth in verses 5, 6, and 7. Just in case you were wondering, like, Yeah, this is just normal. No, Abraham's 100, verse 5 tells us, when his son Isaac was born unto him. By the way, I just want to note something in verse 3 before I move on. Abraham called the name of his son, you would expect, just Isaac. But then we get a couple of clauses sandwiched in here to underscore, this is the work of God. That was born unto him, whom Sarah bare unto him. That's key. Because earlier, Abraham had a child by Hagar. That's not the formula. Sarah almost gets taken into into the harem of Abimelech. No, the promise is Abraham and Sarah together. And this verse is saying, by the way, in case you were wondering, this is not Abimelech's kid, this is not Hagar's kid, this is Abraham and Sarah. This is God's promise lining up exactly as he said it would be. Now, verses 6 and 7. Sarah said, God has made me to laugh. God has made me to Isaac, so that all will hear, will Isaac with me? And she said, who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck, that she would have nursed a baby? So I have borne him a son in his old age. This is just an explosion of joy where she's just laughter and joy and delight because God has kept his promises. Listen, when God keeps his promises, it brings great joy. And notice this joy is not limited to Abraham and Sarah, but she says, other people will laugh with me. This reminds me of, uh, of Luke chapter 1 where we have another old couple here. We have Elizabeth and we have Zechariah, and God says, you're going to have a child. His name's going to be John the Baptist. And many will rejoice at his birth. And it's noised abroad in the hill country, and the joy goes cascading and spreading around. And then another child comes along, another miraculous birth, all the more miraculous. Hey, Abraham and Sarah having a kid, that's miraculous. But it's not like entirely impossible, right? Like, okay, that could possibly happen. God using the normal means of producing a child there, and Zachariah and Elizabeth. But then we get a girl named Mary. Right? And Mary is not married. In fact, she is a virgin. And God says, you're going to have a kid. And his name is going to be Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. God is in the business of working miracles. Every miraculous birth in the Bible pointing to the ultimate miraculous birth, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can trace Hannah having Samuel after being barren, Zechariah and Elizabeth having John, Mary ultimately having the Messiah. And these miraculous births, these, the, the, this outworking of God's powerful promise, they are links in the chain of redemption. 
So this here is ultimately not pointing to Abraham and Sarah, but pointing beyond them over the millennia to Jesus. The God, the, the, the second person of the Trinity taking on human flesh, dwelling in our midst. God is a God who fulfills his promises powerfully. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This means there is no sin that is beyond the reach of God's grace. That means there is no sinner that is too far gone that God cannot save. And listen, he saved you and me. And we were spiritually dead. Right? So it makes very little difference if you're raising the dead, whether they have been dead for three days or three years. Raising the dead's a miracle. Guess what? God's in the, the business of powerfully carrying out his promises. He's going to one day make a new heaven and a new earth. I think sometimes we forget that. Here's how I know we forget that is we really freak out when we see this earth falling to pieces. Right? If you turn on the news and you're like, oh no, the, 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 the utopia that I hope to see in this world is not happening. Maybe as a reminder, you don't truly believe that God's the one to make a new heaven and a new earth. By the way, he doesn't do it with our help. He's going to come and burn up this one and he's going to usher in a new kingdom. It's not our job here to build a kingdom in this world, to usher in the kingdom. He's going to do it. His promises he will fulfill powerfully. But next, I want us to see that God's going to fulfill his promises providentially. So when I, here's the distinction. Powerfully, God's coming in. He's intervening. He's sort of directly putting his hand into the affairs of men to make this occur. Providentially, is God sort of working through means, his government of the universe. God's providence is his wise and perfect rule in this world. God rules over everything, not just some things. He is actively involved in preserving his creatures. But when God works providentially, he sort of works through the normal channels, the normal means of human activity. So a miracle, God comes in, uh, Abraham and Sarah have this child. Or a miracle, uh, we have Mary having baby Jesus. When God works providentially, it is him using everything in history to accomplish his purposes. There's your difference. Burkhoff defines providence as God working through all things to, quote, secure the accomplishment of his divine purpose. So God's got a divine purpose here. There's, here's Abraham, here's Sarah, and through them he's going to build a great nation, and through them is going to come the Messiah, and specifically it's going to be through Isaac. However, we have a problem. There's another son. That son's name is Ishmael. Back in Genesis, and six, Genesis 16, Abraham and Sarah had tried to sort of help God out, right? They're like, God said so we're going to have a son. He didn't say who would be the mother, so, hey, Abraham... Sarah says, sleep with my servant Hagar. We'll have the child that way. That's how God will fulfill the promise. So here's Ishmael. He's now a teenager. And by the normal standards of the day, he's the firstborn son. He's the one to whom the covenant would go. He's the one who would inherit everything that belongs to Abraham. But what is God's purpose? It is that Isaac would be the son of promise. So somehow God's going to have to work in such a way that Isaac will indeed be the son of promise. That's what's going to begin in verse number 8. I've got a question. Does it feel kind of warm in here? Okay, getting warm. Tim, do you think you could uh, change the thermostats over to air conditioning? I came in this morning. It was freezing. Turned the heat on. And uh, they get all these warm bodies in here, and uh, it starts to, starts to get toasty. i to switch things back over to the air conditioning. It's not just me up here because I'm preaching away. But God fulfills his promises providentially. So look in verse 8. See how God is going to fulfill this this promise, and he's going to work through the normal means of human activity. And the child, that is, Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. Okay, quick pause here. Why a great feast when he's weaned? Okay, in the ancient world, actually not even that long ago, say 100 years ago, infant mortality was very, very high. It was not expected for a child to make it through infancy. If you made it through infancy... It's like, all right, now we can breathe a sigh of relief. There's a pretty good chance you're going to make it to adulthood. For that reason, babies in the ancient Near East were often nursed until they were about three years old, just for health reasons and because of the the needs that were there. So at this point, about three years have passed between verses 7 and verse 8. All right, as, as Isaac is now about three years old, he is now weaned. He's now made it sort of out of the, the, the danger zone, and he's going to go ahead and grow up. And so now, now Abraham and Sarah are like, throw a big party, right? He's reached three years old. He's going to make it to adulthood. Now, while the party's going on, verse 9, and Sarah saw the, saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had born unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore, she said unto Abraham, 
Cast out, drive out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And this thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman. And all that Sarah hath said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. For, here it is, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That's God's purpose. And he's going to fulfill that purpose. But notice how he does it. He's going to use some very surprising means. Here's the first means God is going to use. It is going to be Ishmael's mockery. Verse 9 says Ishmael was mocking Isaac. By the way, that is the same word Isaac. It's just a slightly different form. So here he is, Isaacing Isaac. But this is not just sort of, hey, they're off playing. Here's the older brother playing with the younger brother. There's something malicious and mean and heartless about it. This is the same term that's used in Genesis 19 when Abraham goes to, or where Lot goes to his sons-in-law in Sodom, and they think that he's joking with them, that he's playing a mean prank on them. In Galatians, Paul, in his divinely inspired commentary on this, says that Ishmael was persecuting Isaac. And maybe there's a sense in which I'm older, I'm bigger, I'm really the firstborn Isaac. Your birth was kind of a weird thing and picking on him that way. We don't know exactly what was going on, but he's being cruel and mean to Isaac. Can we all agree that that is sin? So here's Ishmael sinfully and maliciously treating his little three-year-old brother, right? Never a nice thing for the older sibling to pick on the younger sibling. Um, I can tell I was number four out of five siblings, right? Been on the receiving end of that a couple of times. Uh, No hard feelings of any siblings. Watch this. Love you guys. But next we see this reaction. So here's Ishmael who's mocking and is Isaacing Isaac. By the way, Ishmael is now on the wrong side of Genesis 12 and verse 3, which says, the one who blesses you, Abraham, I'll bless, and the one who curses you, I'll curse. There's going to be built-in consequences for him cursing Abraham's son. But no, notice Sarah's reaction. Wherefore, she said, cast out the bond, this bondwoman and her son. Okay, so you've got this, this half-sibling, and you've got this servant girl around who's really the mom. And here's the older sibling picking on the younger sibling. You know, sort of a normal reaction would be like, hey, Abraham, go correct your son. He, he's picking on my son. This is sort of like going nuclear on something that doesn't require a nuclear response, right? You were mean to me. You said something. It'd be like, you know, someone says something mean about the president of the United States on Twitter and be like, let's go bomb him, right? Like that doesn't, doesn't quite line up. This is a, an outsized reaction to sort of a, a minimal crime. Ishmael is mocking Isaac. Sarah's like, Kick him out. Send him into the desert, which is basically a death sentence. Sending a girl and her teenage boy off into the desert in the Middle East. You know, good luck surviving out there. So what's going on? Sarah is jealous. This is not a a righteous response coming from her heart. This is not coming from the goodness of her heart. This is her being like, I will not tolerate any competition. By the way, whose idea was it for the Abraham-Hagar liaison? It was Sarah's idea. And here's the result of her decision to try to help God out, and it's really coming back to bite her. And her, her desire is, Abraham, boot them out. Now, here's the reason. The son of this bondwoman, you hear the disdain, the son of the slave girl will not be, she doesn't even say, she won't even say her name, right? She won't even say Hagar, she won't even say Ishmael, will not be an heir with my son Isaac. Uh, hey, they're, they're, this is just petty selfishness. This is pride. This is... It's a sin. And yet, God is going to use the sin of Ishmael, and he's going to use the sin of Sarah to accomplish his, fulfill his promise providentially. Victor Hamilton says it well. He says, here's an instance of God using the wrath of a human being to accomplish his purposes. A family squabble becomes the occasion by which the sovereign purposes and programs of God are forwarded. Praise God that we are the God who can use the pettiness of Sarah, the mockery of Ishmael, the hatred of Joseph's brothers, the maliciousness of Calvary to accomplish his purposes. God does not simply rule over some things. He rules over all things. It's not simply parts of history that will bring glory to God, but all of history, when it is done, will be a tapestry that is woven together in such a way to exalt the purposes and the glory and the grace of our God. Now, that does not excuse sin. There's no sense in which God's like, well, Ishmael's mockery is okay because it accomplishes my purposes. No, God will judge Ishmael for that. Sarah's Sarah's sin here is real sin for which she is culpable. 
but God still uses the sin to accomplish his purposes. Don't forget that. Because we can look at the sin and the suffering in this world and be like, how could a good God allow X? If God's really there, how could he allow Y? When in reality, he is using suffering and sin for his glory. Think about it in your own life. You're like, this suffering I'm going through, if there's a good God out there, why, why do I have cancer? Why is my family falling apart? Why did my wife leave me? Why this? Why that? And some people will say, because of that, I can't believe in God. And here's your alternative. If you don't believe in God, that suffering is entirely random and purposeless. But as a Christian, here's my worldview. That God has a purpose in everything. He's the God of Romans 8, 28, who through all things is accomplishing his purpose for us to be glorified, for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. But there's another tool that God uses here in this story. Don't, don't lose sight of Abraham. The thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. Don't forget, Ishmael is Abraham's flesh and blood. Abraham loves Ishmael. This is not just, oh, yeah, who cares about Ishmael? Kick him out. I don't, I don't, I don't care. No, this was painful. This was agony to Abraham. So we see God using Sarah's jealousy, using Ishmael's mockery, using Abraham's agony to get Ishmael out of the picture so Isaac can be center stage. Abraham's not quite ready to go along with Sarah again. Last time he went along with Sarah's plan. That's how Ishmael came about. But God tells him explicitly in verse 12, Abraham, do not let it be grievous in your sight. Listen to Everything Sarah is saying here, why? For in Isaac shall thy seed be called. This is my purpose. This is my plan. Only divine direction convinces Abraham to acquiesce to Sarah's petty demand. Her demand was rooted in simple jealousy, and yet it was consistent with God's purposes for Isaac. So God graciously soothes Abraham's aching heart with the balm of his promise. Notice there's a couple of promises. Verse 12, first one, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other, in other words, the family name will be on Isaac. So when we talk about Abraham, we go Abraham and then Isaac. Ishmael is sort of a side story. But more than that, this means that Isaac will be the son of promise. Yes, God makes a promise to Abraham, but guess what? That promise is not passed down through the bloodlines. God's covenant is not simply because you are related to the right family. It is by grace that we are brought into the family of God. God has a promise for Ishmael and also of the son of the bondwoman, I will make a nation because she, he is thy seed. There is also a secondary promise for Ishmael. Ishmael will result in the Ishmaelites of a great people, but not part of the covenant. God, participation in God's covenant is not based on your family. You say, I'm a Christian here. Why? Maybe you say, well, I'm a Christian here today because, well, I was raised in a Christian home. I responded on a Gallup poll that I am a Christian. I identify as a Christian. My family is a family of preachers. My mama was a, a godly woman. But listen, we do not enter the, enter the family of God by being part of simply a human family. We enter by faith. You must be born again to enter the family of God. Romans 9 makes this very clear. Turn over with me to Romans 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 6 says this, Not as though the word of God had taken none effect, Romans 9, Romans 9, verse 6, For they are not all Israel which are of Israel. In other words, just because you're within you know, the family of Israel, this, this ethnic group, he says you're not part of the people of God. They're not all Israel which are of Israel. Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are all the children. In other words, you're not a child of God just because you are physically a child of Abraham. But, here he quotes our verse, in Isaac shall thy seed be called. In other words, hey, Abraham has two sons, Ishmael, Isaac, but they weren't just automatically in because they were related to Abraham. No, God's covenant was selective. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, those who are the physical descendants, they are not the children of God. Okay, just because you're, you're Jewish, Paul is saying, does not mean you're a child of God. But the children of the promise are counted for the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time will I come and Sarah shall have a son. So again, he is quoting from Genesis 18. And not only this, here's another illustration. But when Rebekah also had conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, and you skip the parentheses, it was said unto her, verse 12, the elder shall serve the younger. In other words, God reserves the right to be selective. 
right? So Abraham has two kids. It's not just automatic that they're in, but God says, I'm selecting Isaac, not Ishmael. When Rebekah and Isaac have, a ki- have kids, Jacob and Esau, God says, I'm choosing Jacob and not Esau. Now, jump back to the parentheses. Verse 11 explains, For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. In other words, it's not like, well, Isaac was just a better kid than Ishmael, or Jacob was a better kid than Esau. No, it's because of God's gracious purpose. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So notice how Paul uses this event in the New Testament to say, God's purposes of grace, who he saves, is not based on who your parents are. It's based on his purposes, who he extends grace to. From the human side, who believes. It's faith that brings you into the family of God, not genetics. So God uses all these things back to Genesis 21 to accomplish his purposes. Now notice how this plays out in verse 14. God's fulfilling his promise that Isaac would be the son of promise. He's doing it providentially, using all of the sin and depravity to do it. Verse 14, and Abraham rose up early in the morning. So apparently God appeared to him in a dream. Abraham, first thing, starts to obey God and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child. And send her away. Now, the syntax is really weird in the Hebrew. Some people are like, he puts the child on her shoulder. What's going on? What's going on is the, even in the, the, the way this is recounted in the Hebrew is the word, and the child is held back to the very end. He gives her the bread. He gives her the water. And then at the very last minute, maybe waiting for a word from God, says, all right, here's the child's hand in your hand. You go. This, this is heartbreaking. Abraham does not want to do this. This is not Abraham being like, yeah, get Hagar and Ishmael out of here. He loves his son, and yet he obeys God. Yet he obeys God. He rises early to do the painful deed. He tenderly loads up Sarah or Hagar with this animal skin full of water. It contained about three gallons of water, all the bread that he can cram into a bag, and then hands over his dear boy Ishmael. You can picture Abraham. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I can picture Abraham watching as they go more and more distant off into the desert, as they finally disappear over the horizon, he will never see Hagar or Ishmael again. And he's doing this because he obeys God. This is painful obedience. Into God's hand, Abraham commits his son. Now, what prepared him for this? A thousand other little decisions prepared Abraham for this moment. Abraham, leave Ur and everything you know. And Abraham says, I believe God, and I take that step of faith. Abraham, go into a land that I will show you of, and he takes another step of faith. And Abraham, yeah, there's stumbles along the way, going to Egypt and his thing with Abimelech and lying and, and, and these stumbles, but every step of faith prepared him for the next one. And this, by the way, prepares him for the ultimate call of faith in Genesis 22. There's some amazing parallels between this and Genesis 22. Genesis 22, God calls Abraham to give up not just Ishmael, but now Isaac. He says, take Isaac to a mountain I'll show you and offer him. And again, Abraham rises up early in the morning. And again, Abraham takes, this time rather than bread and water, but he takes the wood and the instruments of sacrifice. In both cases, God protects Abraham's son and delivers Abraham's son. What's going on here? God is saying to Abraham, I've got a promise for you, and it is the ultimate. It is the best thing, and I'm asking you, and I'm calling you, Abraham, to give up everything that is less. You see, God only ever says no to his people to give a greater and a better yes. He says, Abraham, I need you to say no to Ishmael so you can say yes to Isaac. And ultimately, I need you to say no to Isaac so you can say yes to what? To me. Every no is a greater yes. And at the bottom of that greater yes is the ultimate yes. It is God himself. God is saying to Abraham, your faith needs to be enough not only to get you out of Ur, but to embrace me as your greatest treasure. And if that means painfully seeing Ishmael leave, if that means agonizingly putting Isaac on the altar, you're getting something so much better than Ishmael or Isaac, and you're getting Yahweh. You're getting me. God quite simply loves us too much to let us hold on to that which is less than his ultimate good. The ultimate good in all the universe is not having Ishmael or Isaac or having a family or money in the bank or living in the United States of America. The ultimate good in the universe is having God as your greatest treasure. He is utmost in his own affections and he demands that he be utmost in ours. 
And he will call us to do painful things. He will call us to give up whatever we begin to love more than him. And that would be a thousand different things in our hearts. For some of you, it may be a child. Your children have become the idols in your life, and you, you can't tell them no. You won't tell them no, and you, you won't confront them in their sin because oh, that, that relationship has become an idol. It could be a spouse. It could be a job. It could be a sports team. It could be pursuing a certain dream. Not bad things. But when they become ultimate things, God will confront every idol that competes in our hearts with him. So God is providentially and kindly taking Ishmael out of the picture so Abraham can embrace the greater yes. But I want to draw your attention to a final scene here. God fulfills his promises powerfully, gives Abraham and Sarah the son that he had promised decades before, and boom, here's Isaac. He fulfills it providentially, working through mockery and jealousy and agony to get to the greater yes. But he's going to fulfill his promises personally. Verse 13 makes a statement, also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a great nation. So God has promised to Abraham that Ishmael, Right? Ishmael is also going to be a great nation. He had already told Abraham that earlier, but I think Abraham perhaps had forgotten that back in Genesis 17. Abraham has, had asked God, would Ishmael live before you? And God had said in Genesis 17, verse 20, As for Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful. So while Ishmael will not be part of the covenant of salvation, if you will, God's still going to bless him. God's still going to shower the rain on the just and the unjust because of Abraham's sake, which means this, Ishmael can't die. If God's going to fulfill his promises, both Isaac and Ishmael need to survive, right? So God makes a promise in verse 13. Now notice how he fulfills this promise personally. And now the camera, if you will, if you're watching the scenes, has been in Abraham's camp. Now we go to a different scene. It's no longer in Abraham's camp. Abraham and Sarah are no longer there. The laughter of Isaac is silent and distant. The end of verse 14 says, And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. So she leaves Abraham's camp and heads sort of towards the south, down towards the Negev, which is an absolute wasteland, rightly called wilderness. And the water was spent in the bottle. So she's got those three gallons of water in the animal skin. They've drunk all the water. They've run out of water. And she cast the child under one of the shrubs. Basically, the, the picture is Ishmael, who's now a teenager, He's completely out of steam. He can go no further. And he has collapsed in the heat, perhaps dealing with dehydration. And you're in the middle of the desert. No cell phones. There's no satellite phones. There's no local Starbucks or McDonald's or anything to to provide help. Nobody even knows they're out there. Abraham doesn't know where they went. There's no search parties looking for them. Verse 16, and she went and sat down over against him a good way off. So she goes... She turns her back on her, on her son. So here he is under a bush. Off she goes. She went about a bow shot. So about as far as you can shoot an arrow. So maybe 100 yards, a football field's length away. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. There was a little reference to archery earlier, and that's a harbinger of what his career will be. He dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, down near the, the Sinai Peninsula. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. That basically wraps up the story of Ishmael. But I want you to notice how God personally fulfills his promise that he makes regarding Ishmael. He doesn't just, yeah, it'll kind of happen, we'll see what works out. But he personally goes about doing this. Now, here's my point. If God does this for unregenerate Ishmael, If God does this for those who are not part of his covenant, how much more will he care for his own children? So notice what God does. For one thing, we could argue that God sees. 
Verses 14, 15, and 16, there's this horrible situation. She's run out of water. The, the child Ishmael's under a tree. She's weeping. Death is the only thing that they can look forward to. She's lost, homeless, hopeless, and helpless. Completely isolated. Maybe you feel that way this morning. I'm just isolated and the loneliness is gnawing at my soul. Please know this, that God sees. Earlier in Genesis 16, she had learned that God sees. Thou God seest me when she had run away the first time. In her desperation, there's nothing left to do but to sob and to await death. Maybe she was so dehydrated there weren't even tears in her sobbing. Just what you should feel the, the pathos of this scene. Now, it's not explicitly stated, but we know from Genesis 16 that our God is a God who sees. Back in Genesis 16, she called the name of the Lord that spake with her, Thou God seest me. He is a God who sees, a God who knows. But we go on, we find out that God sees. Notice what he's doing there in verses 14 through 16. And next we find out that he is a God who hears. And God heard the voice of the lad. Now, we're not told that Ishmael was praying or Ishmael was crying. She sort of gone out of earshot, but Ishmael is there crying, maybe crying out to God in prayer, maybe simply just crying out in the pain of what he was feeling. And God heard. Now, what does the name Ishmael mean? The name Ishmael means God hears. And so actually embedded right there in the text is Ishmael. And it goes on with some other things on the end of the Hebrew word. But there we get his name built into the text. He doesn't get named at all in this story until the, the very end. But here God is saying, I, I know your name and I, I hear your cry. God heard that cry. God hears his voice. So God not only sees, but God hears. God's personally involved in seeing to it that this promise is fulfilled. Remember, if Ishmael dies, God's a liar. Okay, because God said Ishmael's going to be a great nation. It's kind of hard to be a great nation if you die without kids. So what's at stake is the integrity of God. God sees, God hears, and then notice God speaks. And the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven. By the way, Genesis 22, God will also call out of heaven to Abraham. The parallels between God protecting Ishmael and God delivering Isaac are, are very much built into this text. The angel of God, the messenger of God, the spokesman of God. So what the angel of God says, even though it's not God himself speaking, carries divine weight. So God speaks. What aileth thee, Hagar, fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, take hold of him in thine hand, for I will make him a great nation. So God speaks. So God sees, God hears, God speaks. These are personal verbs. This is not just God way off in heaven sort of watching history unfold, but this is God actively involved, God speaking. This promise is not conditioned on Hagar's godliness or Ishmael's merit. Don't think that this is like, oh, look, they were just real stand-up people. Um, oh, they, 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 they've done plenty of things in this story to be, be culpable of, of various sins. But God calls her to act in faith, lift up the lad. Now, God does something else in verse 19. So God, God sees, God hears, God speaks, and now God reveals in verse 19. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. God reveals to her the source and the means of her deliverance. So here's a well that was there all along in Beersheba. By the way, um, at the end of the chapter, we find out that Abraham had a well that he had dug in Beersheba. Maybe it was the same well. But here's God saying, here's a well that was there all along. She, she couldn't see it. Maybe in her desperation and, and sort of fading in and out of consciousness, she didn't notice it. And then God opens her eyes to see the means of deliverance that was there all along. It's hard to let that one go. Uh, God does the same every time he saves a sinner. The means of deliverance, the cross of Christ has been there all along, but we don't see it. We see we're so short-sighted. We see, oh, I'm going to trust my own works, my own efforts, my own means of deliverance. So God says, I'm going to open your eyes to see the cross and the Savior who died in your place. And that's your only hope. Hagar cannot get water out of the sand, right? She can't get some rocks and be like, we're going to squeeze these rocks and produce our own deliverance. Water can only come from a well. Deliverance can only come through Christ, and we can only see it if God reveals it to us. So what God promises, you'll be a great nation. 
he provides for. Here's a well to keep you alive. Now, verses 20 and 21, we see God fulfilling his word. God was with the lad, and he grew, and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. God had predicted earlier he would be sort of a wild man, sort of a nomad of sorts. So here he is out in the desert. He becomes an archer. Apparently, he, he learns that skill very well. It's a means of killing animals and surviving and providing for his, for his mom. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. So that's down near Egypt, down near the Sinai. And his mother took him a wife out of the land of Egypt. So mom takes over the job of what a dad would normally do, arranging a marriage. And then through that, we find out later on, there's a brief genealogy in later chapters where we find out, I think it's Genesis 25, that Ishmael is going to have 12 sons and 12 tribes will come from him. And that'll be the last we sort of see of him. Here's the point. God fulfills what he promised. Now, what does this all mean? Paul gives us a commentary on this in Galatians. Galatians. So go over with me to Galatians chapter 4. It's interesting how the New Testament uses, we've noted how it uses this passage in Romans 9, but Paul references this in some detail in Galatians 4. In Galatians, Paul is talking to people who want to try to keep the law to earn their salvation, try to be good to earn God's favor. And he's using numerous arguments to sort of disabuse them of that notion. He, he uses arguments from the scripture. He uses logical arguments. He argues illustrations from culture. And now he's going to take an illustration from scripture. And he's going to say, okay, the story of Hagar and Ishmael getting kicked out is an illustration of, of our redemption. So look in verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, law do you hear? Do you not hear the law? Let me tell you a story from the, from the Torah. For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman, okay, Ishmael and Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. Okay, human effort is what brought Ishmael into, into this world. It was Abraham and Sarah trying through human works to achieve sort of God's purpose. But he of the free woman was by promise. Okay, so there's sort of two means by which this happens, either human effort or divine grace, which things are an allegory. Now, he's not saying Scripture itself is an allegory, like it never happened. It's just, you know, pull out whatever you want from Scripture, but he's saying, I'm going to use this as an illustration. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Okay, very simply, he's saying Hagar represents people trying to earn salvation on their own through the law. All right? Then he goes on. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, verse 28. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Can you see the illustration? Two kids, Ishmael, the son of human effort. Isaac, the son who came by way of divine promise. And he's saying, okay, if you're a Christian, you're a believer in Jesus, you're a son who has embraced the promise, who has received by grace through faith, and therefore you are free. Okay, so Hagar was a slave. She's in bondage. Sarah was his wife. She was free. These children, freedom and slavery, promise and human effort. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. So he's saying, hey, just like Ishmael picked on Isaac, so those who try to earn salvation through human effort persecute those who do it by divine grace. Back in Paul's day, the Judaizers, those who were preaching a false gospel of, of works, were the fiercest persecutors of Christians who are like us by faith. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. He says you cannot mix human effort and divine grace. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Interesting appropriation there, isn't it, of what, what Paul does with this text. What's his point? He's saying that Ishmael represents the results of trying to earn salvation on our own. Isaac represents earning salvation by trusting in God's promise. And there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's Ishmael and there's Isaac. There's those of you who are here today who are resting only in the finished work of Jesus. You know, I'm a sinner. You know, <laughs> there's nothing good in me. I violated God's law. I'm a rebel against him. My heart is wretched. My intentions are bad. No, I'm not as evil as I could be. I'm a decent person on the outside, maybe. But my heart doesn't want anything to do with God. 
My only hope is Jesus who died on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God, and I'm collapsing in his arms because that's my only hope. I don't have a leg to stand on on my own. Nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. That's Isaac, resting in the promise of God. The other person is Ishmael. Those who say, human effort. Ishmael came about because they tried to sort of short-circuit God's plan, do things their own way, saying, God, let me help you out. I know you said that Jesus died for my sins, but I don't think that's really good enough. Let me add my baptism to that, Lord. Let me add my morality to that, Lord. Let me add my good intentions to that, Lord. Let me add my own efforts. And, you know, I'm a good person who doesn't really need forgiveness. Jesus Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Those are the only people who can be saved are sinners. There's only two types of sinners, those who see themselves as sinners and those who deny that they are sinners. So are you Ishmael or are you Isaac this morning? Are you relying on God's promises or on your own effort? Now let me just conclude with some points of application for all of us. If God is the faithful promise keeper who keeps his promises powerfully and providentially and personally, first obvious implication is we must trust him for salvation and for everything else if you're a person who's always giving in to worry and to fear, what that tells me is there is a lack of confidence. You, you think, I've got to be in control, and when I can't be in control, I worry and I fear. What if you recognize a sovereign God is in control rather than you and put your head on that pillow every night? Second application, if God is the faithful promise keeper who keeps his promises powerfully and providentially and personally, we ought to emulate him. One of Abraham's biggest failures in his life was he was not always an honest man. He was not always a faithful man. Yet if you read the rest of Genesis 21, you'll find out Abraham goes back to Abimelech. There's a treaty that is done that Abraham says, I will no longer lie to you. I'll never lie to you again. Abraham begins to be more and more like the God he worships. And the more you and I reflect and, and gaze upon and admire how, how consistent and faithful my God is, the more I will become like him. The more I meditate on that, the more I admire that, the more I will become that. God's a God who always keeps his word, and we as his people who worship that kind of God ought to be like that. We ought to be people who keep our word. And I confess, I'm not that kind of person. There's so many things I find out in my own life. Man, I said I was going to do that, and I didn't do that. What's going on? Let me give a third Final application, if God is the faithful promise keeper who keeps his promises powerfully and providentially and personally, we've got to worship him. You see, unlike us, God always keeps his promises. Worship him. We're thwarted by weakness, personal weakness, that's one reason we don't keep our promises, by external circumstances and all too often just internal apathy. We don't care. Those are the reasons we don't keep our promises. In contrast, the God who is all-powerful is never thwarted by a lack of ability. He who providentially predestines history is never frustrated by the circumstances he himself controls. And he who personally loves his people with an everlasting love will never, ever shrink back from his promises in apathetic unconcern. Worship that God. Father, we exalt you this morning and we praise you for being the faithful.